Cool. Well, tonight, um, I'm still your pastor, <laughs> but I also want to be a brother tonight. I just want to walk us through a narrative of that Good Friday uh, together. Um, and I just want to take some time and just consider some things with you guys. I know normally we're just verse by verse through Scripture. We try to stick to just what the Word says, and we're going to do that tonight. But I also want to add just in a few things, a few thoughts that I've had uh, about Good Friday and about the crucifixion. Because one of these things, I'm on, you know, probably 15 years of teaching a Good Friday now. <laughs> um, and it's always exciting, but sometimes it's just like, okay, how can we approach this? Well, the cross never gets old. Do you guys know that? But I think it's good for us who are familiar with the Word of God. We've taken in Good Fridays before, and just to take time just to remember. And I really want to encourage you guys as we open up the Scriptures uh, tonight um, that we would just want to try to put ourselves there, what was going on. So I picked uh, Luke uh, 23 for us to go through together. Uh, I asked my boys to read Luke 23 this morning, and they debriefed me a little bit. And it's just cool, just insights that we have that we don't always catch. No matter how old we are, no matter how many times we read through the Scripture, there's always something new in there. So I want to take a look at the episode from the cross here in Luke 23. Look at verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed Jesus. That's not a good... Have you guys ever heard anyone blaspheme Jesus? Yeah. Anyways, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, For we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A strange thing happened on the way to heaven. That's where Jesus was headed. So work your way through chapter 23 here, and you'll follow Jesus from Pilate's judgment hall to the cross on Calvary. By the time we get to our text, his mission is really about finished. 33 years of life, it's all coming to an end. So the price will soon be paid, Jesus was sent to do the Father's will, then bear the sins of the world. In the text here, the next few verses, the weight of sin comes crashing down on his innocent shoulders. The skies, as we know, went dark. The temple, the big veil in the temple, it was torn in two. The lamb receives his load for the crime of sin of all Sin, every sin, an executioner named death will pull the switch and the current of sin will pass through Jesus' sinless body. So when Jesus commits his spirit back to his Father in heaven, sin's debt will have been paid in full. 
and evidence of his triumph is what follows this, both in heaven and on earth. The spiritual and the physical realms are served and noticed that the keys of life are now in new hands. Life and death are now under new management. Satan was crushed. Amen? Amen. And Jesus is now victorious. So Jesus proves it's first uh, to, to these spiritual principalities and powers while a few brave disciples lay his body in a borrowed tomb, Jesus' spirits, uh, spirit dive bombs into paradise where he then declares himself the promised Messiah, that he is the victor over sin. He sweeps up all the Old Testament followers and ushers them into God's very presence. The spiritual realm, it's forever altered. The torn veil in the temple was a symbol of all barriers between God and us, humanity, is now been removed. The coast is now clear to enter into that holy place, that relationship with God, to know him. The door stands wide open. The only remaining issue between us and God is our loyalty to Jesus. And in 17, or 72 hours, earth will also get the news of Jesus' triumph. The stone will be rolled away, and his body will bounce from the grave, surging with new life. You see, death couldn't hold him. The grave has no claim on him. And after his resurrection, Jesus will linger on earth for nearly six weeks. He provides instruction to reassure his doubting disciples, which we are going to look at in depth on Sunday morning. An undeniable evidence to provoke faith for those future generations that were to come. And after 40 days of infallible proofs that the Lord ascended into heaven, and this is why I say at the time of our passage, Jesus is on the cross, but he's on his way to heaven. Do you guys understand? This is where he's headed. He's going to a cross. No, he's really going to heaven. So his work is near completion. A couple more strokes of the artist will finish a masterpiece of salvation. You see, the end of Jesus' long road from heaven to earth and back again, it's now finally in sight. He's shedding his blood and laying down his tired and his broken body. So Jesus is on his last leg. He can see the finish line. How strange that the process of saving the world, Jesus reaches out to a single soul, a criminal nonetheless. You would think an artist putting the final touches on a painting wouldn't want to be bothered. Not now. It's almost done. But not Jesus, right? A strange thing happens on the way to heaven. Jesus takes somebody with him. Imagine what's at stake on the cross. Our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is securing salvation for the whole world. All people, past and future people, everyone who will ever gain access to heaven will be there because of what Jesus did on 
for those six hours upon the cross. So there's never been a more decisive moment in human history than that day on that hill in Jerusalem. And God was in control of everything that occurred. So in those six hours, dozens of biblical prophecies are fulfilled. Every move that Jesus made and every word that Jesus spoke was foreshadowed by the scriptures. God oversaw his son hanging from the Roman gallows. So that's why our text seems so strange and so out of place at first. Why does the holy sacrifice ordained by God, planned before creation, get interrupted by this conversation between these two criminals? Have you guys ever thought that, reading this? Really? Why is this in here? Why is this going on? So their banter back and forth, their jeers and their desperate pleas seem to really defile this sacred moment. Like a passing train in the middle of a wedding ceremony. You guys kind of get it? Like, hey, this is beautiful and wonderful, and this train just came out of nowhere. That's kind of how I picture these criminals. This is what they're doing. It's just like, leave him alone. He's saving the world. (laughs) Anyways, we see this going on here. So I read verses 39 to 41, and I'm tempted to shout out at these two thieves. Hey, how about you guys, you know, piping down a little bit until the Savior's finished? Um, but yet, here's a picture for you and I of God's heart. Are you guys catching this? Okay, I know it's been a long day, but don't miss the heart of God here. Okay, this is his heart. This is what Good Friday is all about. Okay, this picture of the heart of God, we need to see this. Jesus is focused on the world that he wants to save. He dies to save the world. He's fighting spiritual battles. His onlookers know nothing about it, okay? Yet, in the midst of it, this thief asks to go to heaven. Yet, we see this going on, and rather than view it as a bother, Jesus actually grants him his request. Imagine the scene later in paradise. The author of salvation, the Lord of glory, the king of the universe, the darling of heaven, crosses the finish line to cheers of tens of billions of angels and people. And there, a convict just executed for his crime is allowed to take along. You guys got the picture of what's going on? And here's this thief. (laughs) I think that's pretty cool to share in his triumph. So the Savior finishes his work of eternal salvation. So here's a quote that gets uh, at what I'm trying to say. Jesus was crucified, not in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. You guys get how wonderful that is. You see, we tend to categorize the crucifixion as some religious event. The crucifixion has become a religious symbol the only time some people talk about the cross is where? At church. Especially on a Good Friday, right? <laughs> Apparently, the church is where the crosses belong. For most people, the cross is an artifact to be 
revered by spiritual folks, but I don't think so. The cross was a means to an end. It was never to be an end in itself. Jesus wasn't crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. So the cross was meant to be, it was never meant to be hung on our walls or to be worn around our neck or to be used as decorations or turned into a relic. It was a tool in the hand of a loving God who wanted to save sinners like thieves. So the point of Calvary's cross was and is to get sinners to heaven. I love the incident in our text. At first, it seems so out of place. We see the crucifixion of Jesus as a sacred event. We're in awe that this all happened on the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're amazed at the mysterious interaction going on between the Father and the Son. That's amazing. Okay? And then we're uh, hushed by the holiness of the moment when we wonder at uh, the, the transaction that's being finalized there upon the cross. And then this event hammers home this vital truth. It snaps us back to the whole purpose of the cross. In the midst of this high and holy moment, Jesus snatches up this rough and tough battered and bruised, dying criminal by the scruff of his neck and takes the convict with him to heaven. Do you guys think that's cool? I think that's really cool. So here's the bottom line, guys, to the work of Jesus, the crucifixion, the cross. It takes a thief. It takes a thief. I want you guys to realize that in our text here, the Greek word translated criminal means one who uses violence to rob openly. That's that word criminal. Now the guy Jesus saved that day wasn't some white-collar criminal. Okay, He hadn't been convicted for credit card theft. He was, you know, wasn't, he was, he was guilty of armed robbery. Okay? Murder and mayhem. So this fellow, this... He was a bandit. He was a desperado. He may have popped a cop in the process. We don't know, right? But I believe he was chosen by God to be next to Jesus because he was the most unlikely to go to be where Jesus was headed, to heaven. In fact, look at his partner in crime. The other crucified criminal taunts Jesus. He absolutely has no respect He's rebellious to the end. And now hanging on either side of Jesus, I get the impression that these two men probably hung together in life. They both were unsavory characters. This thief deserved death. He had broken the law. But Jesus gave him paradise. And why? I'm glad you asked. Well, it had nothing to do with the work of his hands, right? What, what did he do? What was he doing? He was also pinned to a tree, right? Nor did it have anything to do with the places that he might go to spread the kindness, the goodness of God, right? Because his feet were also nailed to a board. It certainly wasn't because he decided to join a 
church and get involved, okay? Uh, when you're nailed to a cross, you can't go to church. Do you guys know that? Okay, good. So there was only one thing that this boy could do, and that was repent and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. This was the only thing he could do, but it was the only thing he was required to do. You guys understand that? It's the only thing that God asks of us. God the same way, by, we all come to God the same way, right? By grace. It's God's grace through faith in Jesus. That is it, brothers and sisters. Bottom line. So ask this thief what made God, or this Good Friday so good, and he would have sung the praises of God's grace. Guarantee you, it's all Jesus. It was a gift. I couldn't do nothing. I did nothing. Okay? I didn't deserve it. It was a gift. What do you guys think this boy's parents thought about this whole thing? You guys ever think about that? His life of crime burned any bridges that he probably previously had with friends, with folks. I doubt they were probably even at the crucifixion, right? They probably stayed home to spare themselves the shame and the embarrassment of their son in that way. And unless they were on site, close enough to actually hear this conversation with Jesus, they would have gone to bed that night and every other night for that matter, assuming that their son was in the flames of hell. So this is why unless you're there in a person's final moments, you really don't know what occurs between them and Jesus. You really don't. I mean, our sister here, and she sees a lot of people pass. You know, have you seen people come to the Lord last minute? That's our God, okay? Uh, and we don't know. We don't know. I think God in his grace shows up and meets with people in those moments. And I think some people's hearts are so hard that they just say, forget it. And I think some people maybe in those last moments finally break. You're right. I've been so wrong. I'm sorry. They repent and they turn and they believe. We don't know for sure. But in a moment, God worked a miracle and took this criminal to paradise. You guys understand? This is the last moment of this dude's life. So I've heard it said, God has included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to hold out hope, but only one so as not to produce a false hope. I've always liked that, okay? It's there, but we shouldn't bank on it, okay? So I, I agree with that. So God is gracious and kind, and he's definitely merciful. So if there's breath, there's hope. Yet no one who's heard the gospel once is guaranteed to have a second opportunity. So here's what I'm trying to say. Today, there's priests, bishops, archbishops in huge ornate cathedrals parading down church aisles wearing pious robes and carrying ceremonial crosses. They're performing their Good Friday duties faithfully and formally. But such a priest would never do so with a disheveled homeless man say, by his side, or with a broken, humble prostitute 
in tow or with a convicted criminal fresh from the chain gang attached to his hip. These kinds of people would be a distraction to the clergy. They would interfere with the pastor or priest's ecclesiastical work, but not for the Savior of the world in the work that we are celebrating today. In saving the world, even on his way to heaven, Jesus took a thief. I think from the Savior's perspective, Jesus might have been embarrassed to do all the work of salvation without saving someone in a particular as it was being done here. See, he knew that eventually you and I and millions of others would come to faith, that people would believe, join the ranks, be redeemed. He foresaw it all. You guys ever wonder? Uh, I think it was in the um, Passion of the Christ. Isn't that the one where they did all the like, future shots real quick when he was hanging on the cross? You know, I appreciated that that was in the movie because I've always kind of thought that. Like Jesus knew he was God. You know, have you guys ever thought that? Did he really understand did he really know me 2,000 years ago that I would believe in him, that I would follow him? And I often wonder if he got a glimpse as he was hanging in every face that would one day believe. And him being God, I think that, I don't know for sure, but I think he had a pretty good idea really what was going on. Anyways, sidetracked enough. So back to here. <laughs> Aren't we grateful that we're redeemed? You see, Jesus really wanted to cross the finish line with uh, immediate spoils, you know? Hey, I just laid down my life for many, right? And by the way, hey, here's one, you know, <laughs> already. Isn't that cool? So he didn't want to have to wait a second. You see, the Savior had something to show for his efforts. He took with him a thief to heaven, and it was a sweet victory. So could God have done anything more to prove how much he loves the lost, the last the least of us, that in saving the world, Jesus took a common criminal with him. Realize Jesus isn't enamored with crosses today. They hold for him no sentimental attraction. It was the spoils of salvation that made the toil of salvation so worthwhile. The cross was just a tool to save people. You guys understand that? That's why there's rejoicing when one sinner repents in heaven. Okay? That's the joy of our God when someone comes to faith. That's what pleases him. So the Savior refused to enter heaven empty-handed, and that's why a strange thing happened on the way to heaven. The Savior of all mankind took a thief. So here's another way to think about this. Jesus hangs on the cross, Two criminals, one on each side of him. All three men are hanging there together. If Jesus is really into salvation, why doesn't he invite the people with whom he was hanging out to go to heaven with him? Right? See, for Jesus to have left a willing soul on the cross, it would have been a mockery of all that he stood for and all that he wanted to accomplish. It would have been inappropriate for the Savior to arrive into heaven all by himself. 
And I think the same should be true for us. Do you really want to go to heaven all by your lonesome? If you're born again, absolutely not. You want people, you want your loved ones to be with you. So what about you guys? How about the people that you hang out with? The guys you hang out on, work with on a regular basis. But pastor, those guys, they're, they're bandits too. You know, they're criminals. They're, you know, thugs. They, they don't deserve God's love. <clears throat> and neither do you. <laughs> you guys understand that. None of us do. So when we get it, being criminal simply means that you're a candidate for God's grace. That's what it means. But I'm too busy. I got church stuff and Bible studies and to carry on and have those type of conversations with people who don't understand. I don't have time for that. If that's the case, you've got some serious priority problems. You see, you've hung the cross in a cathedral between candles. That's all you've done. You've forgotten it belongs not in a church or in a religious setting, but on a hill in plain view where everybody gets to see. Next to a public road between sinners. So here's what I think. So we consider this text together tonight. This incident with the thief proves that God wants folks to go to heaven in bunches. Okay? He wants to do that. I've seen him do that. See, even the Savior took somebody with him here. Here's the place for you and I to start. So what about our family? What about our spouse, our children, our aunts and uncles, nephews and nieces? Have you given up on people whom, <clears throat> with whom you hang? I want to recall with you guys a story that we find in Acts 16. I know many of you guys here uh, from Freedom uh, are familiar with this. How we have that earthquake that rocked the jail. You guys remember that in Philippi? And Paul there with Silas, they're set free. And uh, the warden of the prison, he saw a miracle, right? And he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, I think that's one of the coolest scriptures in the Bible, right? What must I do to be saved? Wouldn't you guys just be blown away, like uberly blessed if someone just came up to you? I know you're a Christian. What must I do to be saved? Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) Well, that's what happened with Paul and Silas here. But here's what I want you guys to notice. The focus of Paul's answer wasn't just the jailer. Paul also included the people with whom he hung out, his own family. Paul replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So that doesn't mean the jailer decided for his family. That's not what the text is saying. Like the criminals on the cross, everyone has to make their own decision. But God likes to save people in bunches. We're told that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. So Paul preached to the jailer and his posse, and they all responded to faith. So when they received Christ, they all got saved. So 
If you're picking grapes, how many of you guys like grapes? Yeah, I like grapes too. From a vine, you're not just going to pick one by one, right? No, you're going to pick a big old clump of them, right? Um, it's better to get bunches. So grapes, they come in clusters, and so do people. So when God saves one, why not save people around him? Why not save a gang, you know, or <clears throat> not just a gang member, right? Or just, you know, <laughs> save a team, not just a teammate, okay? We see it here with the jailer's family, um, not just the jailer. So why not save the criminal even as he saves the whole world? I think that's pretty cool. So salvation is a bandwagon. And as it rolls along, God wants anybody and everybody to jump on board. Um, there's another story that I'm sure that you guys remember. Okay, you guys remember the wild man? He was full of demons. Okay, he was tortured. He was being tormented. He was held up in the caves east of the Sea of Galilee. Here's another unlikely candidate for salvation. And at one point, his family and his friends, they tried to tie him uh, down to protect him from hurting himself and others. But when demons inflicted him, he would break the shackles, the restraints. He became impossible for a man to live uh, in society. So he just roamed the barren hillsides there in isolation. And that is, of course, until Jesus showed up, right? <laughs> Jesus met him. Jesus cast out those demons and set the man free. And what was said of this man afterward is a perfect picture of what Jesus does for everyone he saves. Okay? They found the man from whom the demons had departed. Where? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I love that. So here's a man who is gloriously miraculously born again, saved. He experienced a personal miracle in his own life. And it's no wonder when Jesus boards the boat then to leave, this man pleads with him, can I go with you? Please, Jesus, can I come? But that's when Jesus instructs his new disciple, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. Rather than going overseas, the man was to oversee the salvation of those nearby. So when salvation comes like a wildfire, God wants it to spread to those close by. Christians today talk a lot about personal salvation, which we need to be personally saved. Do you guys understand that? Okay. Good if mom and dad believe in Jesus and have faith. That doesn't make you saved. You got to believe too. So, God has a personal plan for your life. Don't we like hearing that? I have purpose. There's a plan for me. But sometimes we say it as if all that God cares about is me, my welfare. God's direction in life and my home in heaven end up being God's sole priorities. How foolish, right? How foolish but we have a tendency in the church to do that. If Jesus took time out from saving the world to take a thief to heaven, then how can my relationship with God ignore the salvation of people that are around me? If I'm so busy with my life, 
or with my serving God that I ignore people that I hang out with, then something is wrong. So let's not forget people last forever. They are eternal beings. So a strange thing happened on Jesus' way to heaven. He took a thief. And the same strange thing should be happening on our way to heaven. It should just be happening. When I first got baptized in the Spirit of God, I was 18 going on 19. Um, Brian, you were around a little bit, okay? One of my friends, Josh, gets saved, and he ends up bringing a bunch of his friends from high school. They get saved. Charlie ends up coming around. He ended up getting... Do you guys remember? It was like a bunch going... There's just a bunch of people. One would get saved. They would share with their friend, and they would go share with their friend. They'd go home, share with their mom and dad, and drag them to church the next week. It was just this bunch, and it was so fun. I just start walking with the Lord intimately, and I'm seeing bunches of people getting saved. It was crazy. I was doing junior high ministry. We had a Monday night study at home. There'd be times we have 60, 70 kids, just all these kids coming around, and it seemed like every week kids are getting saved. It's like, what is going on? But I've seen them do that. I've been on a trip to Romania. I was there for only 10 days. Over 50 people came to faith in Christ. A church was planted and built within a week. What's up? God saves in bunches. Families getting saved. Friends, the homeless who are living together. Have you heard of this Jesus? I just received him. He's forgiven me of my sins. You need to know him the same night. People bringing people back. You need to talk to this guy and tell him what you told me. <laughs> you know? He saves in bunches. So why would God save one when he could save two? Why just you if he can save the people with you? So don't forget, guys, God likes to save people in bunches. Here's one truth we learn from the cross of Jesus Christ. In saving the world, he took a thief. So with that in mind, we're going to partake in communion together. Because that is one thing that we get to do as a bunch together tonight. Because we share this common faith. And again, uh, the only thing we ask here at Freedom Fellowship with communion, it's an open communion. Have you personally put your faith in Christ alone? Do you believe that he truly is the one and only Savior of the world? That he is the way to the Father, to heaven? That you really believe what he did on that cross? Like that thief believed that he was the Savior. Do you believe? I love it. Anyways, if I could have a couple of the guys uh, hand out the communion for us. And once they've passed it out, I will pray. And we're going to have the worship team come up and do a couple more songs as we close our time together tonight. Do you guys want me to share another bunch story of people getting saved? Yes. I know I threw out like 20, that was like 20 years ago. When that was, what year did you get saved, Charlie? Like 20 years ago. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Anyways, that was like 20 years ago. 
Um, in the last decade, I got to spend a lot of time um, in a place where people had to be bunched together. Okay? They were incarcerated. And in the jail, they would have blocks. They'd have anywhere from 10, 20 uh, plus people in one um, setting, okay, in one, one living area together. It'd be really cool because if you'd come out, like we had Bible classes, we had about 20 Bible studies going on during the week up in our county jail, but they would call over the loudspeaker, everybody that would be invited to Bible study or had signed up for it, and you know, being in that type of setting, that wasn't cool. People would start raging, you Bible thumper, you Jesus freak, really? You're a wimp, what are you doing? Well, you know what happened? People would come to Bible study who had never opened up the Bible before. They just knew that they were sinners, that they were broken. They were looking for some type of hope, some type of answer, okay? Start seeking God. They come to faith in Christ. You know what they would do when they go back? They would start reading the Bible because they want to know Jesus better. And they'd have cellmates like, hey, what are you doing that for? Why are you spending so much time reading that? And they'd start asking questions. And there was a point where almost every single block in our county jail was doing their own, like they won't let the chaplain or any Christian go in to the blocks. That's where I wanted to hang out, but I only got to see the people who asked to see me or the Bible studies we held. Bible studies started to begin in all the blocks up in the jail. Nightly, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes three times a day, we're having morning Bible studies in the afternoon. It got to a point, every class that we had, it went from like six to over 20 Bible studies, and all the 20 Bible studies we were doing had waiting lists. There were so many people, bunches were getting saved that we couldn't even have enough people coming to minister to them. And again, how does that happen? Hey, I found Jesus. I've been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. You want to go too? I know you. I want you there with me. I like you, you know, or I don't like you, but I know God does. You should come too, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's the beauty of the good news, right? So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God saves us. I see him saving families. You know, I think it's so cool when somebody comes to faith and then you see their whole family follow suit, you know? They come out of whatever and just like, yeah, this is great. It's wonderful. And I thank God for you guys, my church family. And it's good to be here tonight together. So why don't we bow our heads and uh, thank the Lord. Father, we are um, just grateful for this moment that we have tonight together to reflect on your word. Father, reflect what you did on your way to heaven. I'm kind of excited to meet the thief someday, Lord just looking in and considering just what he was going through, what he was thinking. Father, it's going to be so cool just being able to hear from him one day firsthand. And it's, we're so thankful, God, because there's so many people that we're going to want to see again one day. That's the hope that we have for all those that have called upon your name. And that's where it's cool when bunches get saved. I know many of us have family that we love to see come to faith, to walk with you, to be set free, Lord, to have eternity set before them. God, help us to share with them. Help us to be mindful of you. Help us to walk with you, that they would see that light. Lord, we know that you said when you're exalted, when you're lifted up, you'll draw all men to yourself. And we thank you tonight that as we consider you being lifted up upon that cross, God, 
we are drawn to you. We love you because you first loved us and that demonstration of you hanging upon that tree, laying down your life on the cross for us that our sins could be forgiven. What a wonderful display of your love. God, your sacrificial, unconditional love for each and every one of us. We do thank you, Father, for your life. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing. We thank you, Father, that you love this world so much that you were willing to send your only Son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We give thanks. We do remember, Lord, tonight. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would always help us to remember and be mindful, Father, of the reality of the cross, Jesus, and all that you've done for us. So we give thanks. It's in your name we pray. Let's partake of the bread and the cup together, guys. Aren't you guys glad it's been paid in full? There's nothing left. Absolutely nothing. He's done it all. All we do is receive. He's such a good God. Why don't you stand and we'll have the worship team come up and close us up with worship tonight.